recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. And this is Christagenia on TalkShoe. Today is Friday, November 2nd, 2012. This year's gone by rather quickly. I have a few things to say before I begin my presentation of Luke chapter 19 this evening. Server statistics at Christagenia, I'm flabbergasted. I'm very humbled by this. Um, I I never really paid attention to podcast downloads on the server statistics before before August of 2012, so I have no numbers before August of 2012. In August of 2012, of course, I had to leave one and one and go to new servers. So the statistics for that month are off a couple of days. They're not quite complete. However, 44,009 Christagenia podcasts were downloaded from Christagenia.org, my main site, in the month of August. And I thought that was remarkably high until September came along and 50,611 podcasts were downloaded. In October, the number was 51,415. So I can only praise Yahweh for that. From the Mein Kampf site and from the Saxon Messenger site, nearly half that number again were downloaded. However, not all of those, most of them were Christogenia material, but not all of them. That There are other, other MP3 files on those websites. Most of them are Mein Kampf project programs that I had done with Sword Brethren. And some of the um, podcasts that, that I have from Christagenia that are pertinent to the Saxon Messenger site and are also posted there. 23,000 podcasts were downloaded from those two sites combined in October. So praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. I pray that, um, that the trend continues. And then more of our people come to the two seed line Christian identity message as they need to. It's the only the, the only interpretation of scripture that's consistent with all scripture and helps to explain all history. I received a couple of letters last week regarding my Luke eighteen, Luke chapter eighteen presentation. One um, dear friend and supporter wrote, Dear Bill, what I took away from your radio broadcast tonight is that when Christians walk away from their families to separate from evil, that's the key there, right? That's the key um, idea there. We can expect to have our need for family love with other Christians. And yes, that does very succinctly encapsulate the ideas that are expressed in Luke 18.29, in which I attempted to explain two weeks ago when I presented that chapter. And he, meaning Yahshua Christ, said to them, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that is left, house or parents or brethren, or wife or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, 
who shall not receive manyfold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. Paul says that we should provide for our families, there's no doubt. But when our families are engaged in the evil of the world, yes, we have to separate from them. And yes, we have a promise that our need for family will be fulfilled in our fellow Christians, who are, by necessity, because we consider them to be Christians, part of our wider racial family, our wider racial community. Don't ever forget that. Light has no concord with darkness. I received another letter, and, and this is interesting, so I'm going to read it. it it's, um, I, I've heard it before, but, but this sums it up pretty well. It, it, concerns the, um, it concerns the passage in Luke 18.25 where it says, For it is easier, where Christ says, For it is easier for a camel to go through the, the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And I expounded on that two weeks ago, and, and the letter I received says, Bill, I remembered the I debate, that this is from a, a, a rather studied brother in, in Ohio. I remembered the I debate from many years ago during the Jesus movement of the early 70s. I didn't think they ever cared about the Bible at all during the Jesus movement. The info about the I originally was quoted from the book Manners and Customs of the Bible by James M. Freeman, 1874. Uh, of course, I, I don't read any Bible commentaries. It's very rare I'll look at a Bible commentary, so, so I really don't know what's in them, right? So, so now we see that this is originally quoted from this 1874 book by James M. Freeman. This book was quite popular during this time, meaning the 1970s, being republished by Zondervan Press at a very cheap price. Freeman references a quote from Lady Duff Gordon from the book Bible Animals by the Reverend J.G. Woods, printed um, perhaps in 1875. He has some question marks after that. Both books are available freely on Google, Google Books. Bill, I did some research, and there were eyes of the needles going back into the crusader, crusader period in city and castle walls. But I can't find anything online or in picture before that period of time. The Jerusalem city walls don't date back very far either. Of course, they don't. The original walls were torn down completely. And many of the eye pictures show a remodeled entrance with an eye inserted. In other words, a small gate inside the main gate that only a man could fit through. The problem is finding ruins of gates from Jesus' time. Is the, the problem with finding ruins of gates from Jesus' time, I believe he meant, is that it looks like most ancient cities except Damascus have been utterly destroyed. And that's right, Damascus is, uh, I mean, of course, it's not in its original form now, and it sure as hell isn't inhabited by the original people because the original Syrians were absolutely white. 
and today Syrians are Arabs. However, Damascus is the oldest existing city that I know of that, that's in its, in, that, that basically has never been totally destroyed in a war that I know of. I don't think Damascus has ever been destroyed totally in, in any war. So there is no evidence that I have found that shows that eyes, meaning the eye of the needle being a, a small gate inside of a large gate in the city walls, having existed in early AD or late BC period. And he says, if I find something, I will let you know. To sum it up, Lady Duff Gordon's comment in one book, along with later, the later rebuilt gates of the Crusader period, are the only evidence of eye of the needle gates. And I would say that I, having read many of the classics and, and having, um, and this issue isn't really that important. It's really just a novelty issue. But having read many of the classics and having read many um, accounts of the sieges of cities and, and in Procopius and in Caesar and, and in many um, Polybius, you'll find many descriptions of wars and, and battles and the taking of cities by siege engines and things like that. And never have I seen anything like that eye of the needle described in, in any of the historical accounts or in any archaeological accounts. That's, that, that's why I'm certain that that's not what Christ intended. He really intended the literal eye of a literal needle. And um, if the Crusaders did build their city gates in such a manner as to have that small gate, which they called the eye of the needle, they very well have named that they very well may have named them after their perception of, of what Christ may have meant. I mean that might be the, the um an innovation. So so it it's well well it's really not important, it's interesting. And I don't know if we'll ever know the answer for certain. And it doesn't matter. But it is interesting. So I'm kind of sorry to bother you for that, but I had to I, I had to include it. Now to proceed with our presentation of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Then entering in, he, meaning Christ, passed through Jericho. And behold, a man by name called Zacchaeus. And he was chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. And he sought to see Yahshua, who he is, and was not able to because of the, ground, of the crowd, for he was small in stature. Yet running ahead to the front, he went up into a mulberry tree that he may see him, since he was about to pass through there, or pass by there. And as he came by the place, Yahshua, looking up, said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry, you must come down, for today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Then hurrying, he, meaning Zacchaeus, came down and welcomed him rejoicing. And although seeing it, murmured, saying, that with a sinful man he has entered in to lodge, to stay the night. Then stopping, Zacchaeus said to the prince, Behold, Half of my property, prince, I give to the poor. And if I have extorted anything of anyone, I return it fourfold. 
And Yahshua said to him that today has, pres- has preservation come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. But a son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, that which has been lost. This account of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, only appears in Luke. In fact, most of Luke chapter 19 only appears in Luke. Note the exclamation of Yahshua in verse 9. Today his preservation, or salvation, if you wish to translate the noun in that manner, today his preservation come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. Not because his faith has made him a son of Abraham, which is pretty much an, an, an amazingly fraudulent religious interpretation of the New Testament. It says, because he also is a son of Abraham. We are not told whether Zacchaeus is an Israelite. However, he must be because he is already a son of Abraham. And that is why salvation came to his house. Salvation did not come to the house of Zacchaeus because he offered to give away his property. Salvation did not come to the house of Zacchaeus because he was in any way repentant. Rather, Christ is salvation. Christ is salvation embodied. And Christ chose to come to the house of Zacchaeus because, in the words of Christ, Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save. That which has been lost is the proper interpretation of the Greek, something which is already lost. The word apololus, apololus, is the perfect active participle of the verb apolumi, Strong's number 622. And therefore it describes something which is already and which is still lost. Not something that at some future point in time may become lost, as all of the mainstream sects misinterpret the idea which is represented by Scripture. The lost sheep are described in the Old Testament. The lost sheep were lamented in Ezekiel chapter 34, nearly 700 years before Christ, and over 500 years before the forming of the Judean nation in the form which it was in at the time of Christ, from which have come those people whom we know as Jews. The Jews cannot possibly be lost sheep, because, as Christ had told, many of those who rejected him in John chapter 10, but you believe me not, because you are not of my sheep. 
The key to understanding the Bible, especially the New Testament, is the location and the identification of these sheep of what was lost. As Christ says in Matthew chapter 15, I have come but unto, I have only come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which has been lost. Ancient history, the prophets, and archaeology, studied fully and honestly, reveals the nature and identity of the lost sheep. Not only is the Romans and many of the Greek tribes, but also is the Parthians, the Celts, and the Scytho-Germanic tribes of Europe, in addition to the small remnant of true Israelites in Judea. At Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, we see the same exact word used of these sheep. The perfect active participle in the plural and as a substantive, where Christ says, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which has been lost. In their Greek-English lexicon, Liddell and Scott give an example of the word apolumi as the word was used by the tragic poet Euripides on at least one occasion to describe somebody driven, ruined from his fatherland, which perfectly, which is perfectly descriptive of the ancient Israelites. Isaiah sixty six nineteen tells us in part where the lost sheep of ancient Israel were. Speaking of the tribes of Israel who were being taken away by the Assyrians at Isaiah's very time, Yahweh says through the prophet, Isaiah 66, 19, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. All of those places can be identified. Tarshish in southern Spain, what we know today is southern Spain. Pull was a name given in Isaiah for Assyria. Pol was the name of the king of Assyria at the time of some of the deportations. Lud, Lud, L-U-D, Genesis chapter 10, a son of Shem. Lud is the eponymous ancestor of the Lydians of Anatolia. The Lydians had a large nation consisting of several major cities, Smyrna, Sardis. They were Lydian cities originally in Anatolia, what we know today as modern Turkey. They were neighbors to the Ionian Greeks. 
Tubal can be identified as the Tabani of Herodotus that lived along the Black Sea at the time of Isaiah. And Javan. Javan can be identified from inscriptions. Yavana as the Ionian Greeks. The only people who did appear in every one of those places within 200 years after Isaiah wrote those words were the Germanic tribes pouring into Europe from Asia beginning around the 6th century B.C. To repeat Luke 19, 9 and 10, and Yahshua said to him that today is preservation come to this house because he also is, is the present tense of the verb to be. He is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which has been, that which was already lost the ancient Israelites, who were the only people ever promised salvation. Zacchaeus was already a son of Abraham, and for that reason, salvation came to his house. This man, Zacchaeus, is representative of that which was lost, the children of Israel. Christ came but only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Christ came to seek and to save that which was already lost. All of these ideas are fully embedded in the language of the New Testament. If you are not a genetic Israelite, you have no part in the one true church. The genetic people of Israel are the Israel of God. The seed of Abraham, which sprung from the loins of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. And Abraham believed that would happen, which is how Paul describes the faith of Abraham, which is the Christian faith. Of all the Christian sects, only identity Christianity is fully based upon scripture and history and archaeology. Luke 19.11 then, adding a parable, he spoke for those hearing these things, because he was near to Jerusalem, and they were supposing that immediately the kingdom of Yahweh was going to appear. The people of Judea. And even the apostles were persuaded that the kingdom of God would materialize immediately with the manifestation of the Messiah. In John chapter 6, after Yahshua had fed a multitude of 5,000 men and also many women and children, from five loaves and two fish we have the following. Then the men, seeing the sign which he had made, said that this is truly the prophet who is coming into the society. Then Yahshua, knowing that they were going to come and to seize him, 
in order that they would make him king, he alone withdrew back into the mountains. Again, in John chapter 12, upon Yahshua's triumphant ride into Jerusalem on the foal of an ass, the people are said to have exclaimed, O save, blessed is he coming in the name of Yahweh, the king of Israel, pronouncing Christ to be the king of Israel. The apostles also expected the kingdom of Yahweh to come to fruition immediately. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, just before the ascension of Christ, they inquire, and they say, Prince, then at this time shall you restore the kingdom to Israel. And Christ is said to have responded, It is not yours to know the times or the seasons which the Father has placed in his own authority. Rather, you shall receive power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the end of the earth. That the apostles believe that the Messiah is the rightful king over Israel is evident right from the beginning, as one can see in John 1.49, where, upon Christ explaining to Nathanael how he had seen him, Nathanael replied to him, Rabbi, you are the son of Yahweh. You are king of Israel. While in the Gospels it is recorded that many people professed Christ to be king, he never made the profession directly. He only made it in illusions and in parables. When falsely accused by the Judeans that he was claiming to be the king, we see this exchange between Christ and Pilate from John chapter 18. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and called to Yahshua and said to him, Are you the king of the Judeans? Yahshua replied, Do you say this by yourself? Or have others spoken to you concerning me? Pilate replied, What, am I a Judean? Your nation and the high priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Yahshua replied, My kingdom is not from of this society, or this world, if you will have it. If my kingdom was of this world, my deputies would have fought in order that I would not be delivered to the Judeans. But now, my kingdom is not from here. Therefore, Pilate said to him, then are you king? Yahshua replied, You say that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, in order that I may testify to the truth. Each who is from all the truth hears my voice. Pilate says to him, What is truth? And saying this, he again went out to the Judeans and says to them, I find not any guilt in him. Christ refused to assert that he was king. 
Rather, he credited Pilate with making the recognition. But that's far from an assertion on his own part. Yahweh God wants his people to recognize him as king and to do it on their own. It's part of the Christian trial. A small part, but an important one. A belief in the immediate restoration of the kingdom of God to Israel, prevailing in the minds of the people of Judea in regards to the Messiah. They didn't understand the seven times of punishment and, and the sequence of Daniel's empires and the entire tribulation that Israel had to undergo for their disobedience, which was far from over at the time of Christ. It had actually only just uh, only just centuries before that begun. Because the people, because those who, who thought they were learned in the scriptures at the time thought that the appearance of the, of the, of the Messiah would lead to an immediate restoration of the kingdom of God to Israel. Subsequently, one of Paul's biggest challenges in his ministry was in convincing the people to whom he had brought the gospel that the truth was otherwise. As he explains in Acts chapter 26, verses 22 and 23, However, obtaining assistance from Yahweh unto this day, I have stood bearing testimony to both the small and the great, saying nothing outside of the things which both the prophets and Moses said are going to happen. Whether the Christ was to suffer, whether first from a resurrection from the dead is a light going to be declared to both the people and to the nations. Christ himself corroborates Paul's attitude where he explained this to the apostles on at least several occasions, one of them being recorded at Mark chapter 8, verse 31, which states, And he began to instruct them that it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders and the high priests and the scribes and to be put to death and after three days to be resurrected. All of this is in accordance with the prophecy found in Daniel, where it says at Daniel 9.26, that after a certain prophetic period of time, the 69 weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. It is within the providence of God that so many Judeans understood that the Messiah was to come. They understood when he was to come. And not only Judeans, but also Israelites of the dispersion. The apostles understood and anticipated the Messiah. Luke describes several people, Anna, Simeon, in, in the temple at the time of Christ's being presented to Yahweh in the temple according to the law. Simeon was described as expecting the consolation of Israel and was promised that he would see the Messiah. 
the Magi, the woman in Samaria, the woman at the well. So many Judeans and dispersed Israelites understood that the Messiah was to come, and they missed the plain words of Daniel concerning his being cut off or killed. If he is to be king, a second coming is necessitated, as we see in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, where it says, And when the Son of Man should come in his effulgence, or in his glory, and all the messengers with him, then he shall sit upon his throne of honor. Christians recognize his kingship now, being confidently assured that his words will with certainty be fulfilled. Luke 19, verse 12. Therefore he said, a certain man of noble birth had gone to a distant land to receive for himself a kingdom and return. And calling ten of his servants he gave to them ten minors and said to them, Engage yourselves in business while I go. The mina, or mina, Strong's number 3414, is a Latin coin equivalent to 100 drachma, 15.2 troy ounces. The drachma was nearly equivalent to the Roman denarius, being approximately 88.3% of its value. So one mina being equivalent to 88 denarii, or nearly five months' wages for a Roman soldier of the period, 10 minas would be a considerable sum. Engage yourselves in business while I go. The often quoted from the King James Version, occupy till I come. That's how the King James Version translates that phrase. Is a pitifully archaic and quite poor translation carried over from the Geneva Bible. The NAS version, I think that, please, that, that stands for New American Standard Version, adding some words to the text at least translates the verb more accurately where it has, do business with this, meaning with the ten minors, until I come back. The verb, a plural form of pragma tuomahi, is a passive verb which means to be busy, or to be engaged in business. I feel this is important to address because many Christians, especially identity Christians, take the rather poor King James rendering of this verse, occupy till I come. They take it out of context, and they assume that it means that Christians should assert hegemony over the world as if they could have 
as if they could possibly have such a thing ahead of Christ himself. To quote from Matthew chapter 25 once more, from verse 31, And when the Son of Man should come in his effulgence, and all the messengers with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his honor, and they shall gather before him all the nations, all the ethnicities, the meaning in Greek, and he shall separate them one from another. How he separates them is important because it's on sight. Just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, they're all readily recognizable. And he shall indeed stand the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at his left hand. Then the king shall say to those at his right hand, Come, those blessed of my father, you shall inherit the kingdom which has been, ba- been prepared for you from the foundation of society. All of the goat nations go into the lake of fire. All of the goat nations shall be destroyed. They shall not be ruled over by Christ. The idea that Christ, and by extension Christians, should rule over the goat nations comes from universalists, from the papacy, from the Jesuits, and from imperialists. But it does not come from Scripture. Christ came only for the sheep. He came only to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come for the goat nations. Occupy till I come? No. Engage yourselves in business until I come back. We have to deal with the world until he saves us out of it by reestablishing his kingdom and his law. But he does not rule over the goat nations. The goat nations go into the lake of fire. And there are no third parties. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. If you're a sheep, you have salvation. If you're a goat, you go to the lake of fire. And his citizens hated him, verse 14. And they sent ambassadors after him, saying, We do not want him to rule over us. While the allegory of this parable is not a perfect parallel of the ministry and mission of the Christ, it certainly has many strong similarities and he certainly meant it to be so similar. The parable is meant to show what Christ expects of his servants for those who expect the kingdom of Yahweh. It also forebodes the ultimate fate of his enemies, agreeing with what is already outlined in the books of the prophets. Verse 15. Then it came to pass upon his return 
from receiving the kingdom. That he said to call for him the servants, those to whom he gave the money, the ten minas. That he would know what they did while engaged in business. Where we see the clause, what they did while engaged in business, the King James Version has. How much every man had gained by trading. And in any case, we see what is expected of the servants where the King James Version has in verse 13, occupy till I come, although the Greek literally says, engage yourselves in business while I go. As a side note, the verb erkomahi in Greek means to come or to go, depending on the context. Mark chapter 13, verses 33 through 37, are pertinent here. You watch, be wakeful or alert, for you do not know when the time is. As a man traveling abroad has left his house and given to his slaves authority for each his work and orders the doorkeeper that he should be alert. Therefore, you be alert, for you do not know when the master of the house comes, whether late or at midnight or at the cockcrow in the morning. Not coming suddenly, he should find you sleeping. And that which I say to you, I say to all, be alert. When he comes back, we don't want to be found holding on to that minor and not having done anything with it, right? Christians shouldn't procrastinate in the execution of their faith. Luke 19:16 and that's just a side note. And the first came saying, "Master, your mina has earned 10 minas." And he said to him, "Very well, good servant, because you have been faithful with the least, you must have authority over 10 cities." A great reward in heaven. And the second had come saying, your mina, master, has made five minas. So then he said to him, and you must be over five cities. And another had come saying, master, behold, your mina, which was kept hidden in a handkerchief. For I was in fear of you, because you are a harsh man. Perhaps that could have been translated as, austere. You take that which you have not laid up, and you harvest that which you have not sown. One of the attributes of both cool kings and shrewd businessmen is to freely profit from the labors of others. Verse 22, he said to him, from your mouth I shall judge you, wicked servant, because you had known that I am a harsh man, taking that which I have not laid up and harvesting that which I have not sown. Yet for what reason did you not give my money to the bank that coming I would exact it with interest? 
From the servant's own mouth he was judged. The servant admitted knowing what his master would expect, but still neglected any attempt to meet that expectation. Therefore the servant was judged for his negligence. Luke chapter 12, verse 47. Now that servant, who knowing the will of his master and not preparing or doing according to his will, shall be clubbed much. But he not knowing, yet doing such worthy of blows, shall be clubbed little. All to whom much is given, much shall be sought from him. And to whom much is committed, far more shall be demanded of him. The Bible is its own commentary. That word for bank, for what reason did you not give my money to the bank, the coming I would exact it with interest. That word for bank is trapeza. Interestingly, it's the word which we get trapeze from. Huh? It literally means just a table in Greek. So I don't understand the modern usage. In this context, it is a money changer's table. Therefore, it is a bank, as the word was often employed. Many commentators point to this passage and claim, and I've heard this a hundred times, that Christ approves of usury, any excuse, any excuse at all for their loans, their credit cards. In reality, Christ is only taking an example from contemporary culture to show that the useless servant did not do the least that could be expected of him in order to benefit his master. Making such an allegory does not by itself show that Christ condones usury and many Old Testament passages condemn the practice. God does not change. The law states that Israelites may loan to aliens at usury and for various reasons it is obvious that they certainly should but the law forbids loaning to one's brother with usury. And Christians should certainly follow that example. And I'll give a few examples. Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. This is the law. Thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother. Usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger, an alien, thou mayest lend upon usury. But unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury. That Yahweh thy God may bless thee in all that thou settest thine hand to in the land whither thou goest to possess it. The attitude of the prophets concerning usury is evident in several places. Jeremiah 15.10, the prophet exclaims, Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. 
I have neither lent on usury nor have men lent to me on usury, yet every one of them does curse me. In other words, the prophet is expressing the idea that he may be worthy of his travails if he had been a usurer, but he wasn't. So he doesn't understand why he's receiving such travails. That's the picture that's being drawn there. Likewise, Ezekiel 22.12, describing the people of Jerusalem, In thee have they taken gifts to shed blood. Thou hast taken usury and increase, and thou hast greedily gained of thy neighbors by extortion, and hast forgotten me, saith Yahweh God. Nehemiah 5.7 Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said to them, You exact usury, every one of his brother. That's the crime that Nehemiah is pointing out there. And I set a great assembly against them. And finally, Psalm 15.5, He that puts not out his money to usury, nor takes reward against the innocent, He that does these things shall never be moved. So you never loan to your brother at usury, at interest. Now, I understand that the modern core of Babylon churches have tried to redefine usury by defining it as too much interest. That's not the meaning of the word. Usury is any interest at all, period. If your brother needs a dollar, you should give him a dollar. You shouldn't ask for anything back. However, if you must loan him a dollar, you never take more than a dollar back. Verse 24. And to those present, he said, take the mina from him, the servant that didn't do anything with what he was given, right? Take the miner from him and give it to him having the ten miners. And verse 25. And they said to him, Master, he has ten miners. Now verse 25 is wanting in the codexes Beze and Washingtonensis, both of the 5th century. Verse 26. I say to you that to all having shall be given, but from he not having even that which he has shall be taken. Those of us who have gifts from God, and we all have some gift from God, those of us who have gifts from God but do not use them to serve him shall have no reward in the end. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, any man who builds silver and gold and precious stones upon the foundation of Christ shall receive a reward. His works shall survive the fire. But those who build wood, hay, and stubble, their works are lost in the fire. They have no reward. Although they themselves shall be saved. The words of Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, of course, I'm paraphrasing. 
Those of us who have gifts from God but do not use them to serve him shall have no reward in the end. And we serve our God by serving our brethren. From John chapter 13, verse 12. Therefore, when he washed their feet and took his garments and reclined again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done unto you? You call me teacher and prince, and you speak well, for I am. Therefore, if I, the prince and the teacher, or the Lord and the teacher, have washed your feet, you are also obliged to wash the feet of one another. For I have given to you an example in order that just as I have done for you, you should also do. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor an ambassador greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you would do them. Therefore, we must use our gifts, our abilities to serve our brethren, no matter what talent we have. Of course, foot washing, too many um, mainstream sects take that literally and actually wash each other's feet. Then they leave church on Sunday, they watch niggers run a football up and down the field, and they don't do a damn thing for each other all week. That's not Christianity. Foot washing today isn't necessary. We don't wash each other's feet literally today. It's an allegory. We do whatever we can for each other. Whatever our brethren require help with. And by that, we wash their feet, allegorically. Luke 19.27 But my enemies, those who do not want me to rule over them, you bring them here and slay them before me. And speaking these things, he went forward, going up to Jerusalem. Those who do not want me to rule over them, you bring them here and slay them before me. John chapter 19, verse 15. Then they, meaning those Judeans, incited by their leaders, cried out, kill, kill, crucify him. Pilate says to them, Shall I crucify your king? The high priests replied, We have no king except Caesar. And Matthew. Chapter 24, verses 24 and 25. And Pilate, seeing that nothing helps, but rather a tumult arises, taking water washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent from the blood of this man. You see to it. And responding, all the people said, his blood is upon us and upon our children 
and yes, the entire ancient world, everything that I've read, believed that parents can bind children to their oaths, which, of course, is how the children of Isaac were bound to the oaths which Abraham made. which is how the children of Israel are bound to the oaths of their ancestors at Mount Sinai, and so forth. Who are his enemies? Are the children of Israel his enemies? The children of Israel are not the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ, or they would have all been slain back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when they first sought an earthly king rather than have Yahweh God as their king. Rather, Yahweh foresaw that the children of Israel would do such a thing. That's outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 and 15, where it says, when thou art come into the land which Yahweh thy God has given thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom Yahweh thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. This is exactly why Christ, Yahweh, God in the flesh, came from the house and family of David, so that only he could be the rightful king of the children of Israel. He is the heir to the throne. Yet the gospel makes it clear that there were two classes of people in Judea. First, there was a class of people who anticipated a Messiah, such as Simeon, Luke chapter 2. Simeon, who was a righteous and devout man, expecting the consolation of Israel and to whom it was promised that he would not die until he saw the Messiah with his own eyes. When he did, he rejoiced. Then there was another class of people who rejected the very idea of a Messiah. The Messiah being a king anointed by God. The word Messiah coming from the Hebrew word a synonym of the Greek word Christos, or Christ, meaning the anointed one. And this other class of people feared the idea of a Messiah from the very beginning, from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Yahshua, being born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he, having been born king of the Judeans? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And hearing it, King Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And upon gathering 
all the high priests and scribes of the people. He inquired from them, where is the Christ born? And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For thusly it was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the leaders of Judah. For there shall come out of you a leader who shall shepherd my people Israel. While the priests and scribes knew that scripture, and Herod heard it, they nevertheless thought that they could successfully oppose it, thereby proving themselves to be the enemies of God and of his Christ. The gospel makes it clear how to distinguish between those two classes of people. For Yahshua Christ told those priests and the other community leaders who opposed him that you do not believe because you are not my sheep. He did not say as the mainstream sects all purport in their doctrinal positions, even if they don't purport it explicitly, they purport it in their doctrinal positions. He did not say, you are not my sheep because you do not believe me. Rather, he said, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep, meaning that they were not his sheep in the first place. They were not of the children of Israel. Paul fully confirms this as the proper interpretation, where in the opening lines of Romans chapter 9, he describes those of Israel for whom he cares, his kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he tells us that not all of those who are from Israel are those of Israel. He only cares for his kinsmen according to the flesh and tells us those who are Israel, whose are the fathers and the promises and several other things. And the covenants, covenants plural. Paul then goes on to compare the children of Jacob with the children of Esau. You do not believe because you are not my sheep, because you are the children of Esau. Later in that chapter, Paul compared the children of Jacob to vessels of mercy and the children of Esau to vessels of destruction. It is clear in Scripture, such as in Malachi chapter 1 or in Ezekiel chapters 34 and 35, that the Edomites, that the children of Esau had or were going to, move into the land of ancient Israel and take it over for themselves following the Assyrian deportations. And they did. Secular histories such as those of Josephus and Strabo fully corroborate the fact that the Roman province of Judea was multiracial. The Edomites had been folded into the kingdom of Judea. Judea consisted both of the original Judeans, who were Israelites, and also of the Edomites and others, all who practiced Judaism. Josephus and others also attest 
that the high priests and the rulers and the other officers in Judea were not all of the stock of the Israelites, but were often of the other races, and especially of the Edomites. Thus, in Revelation chapters 2, 9, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 9, Yahshua Christ warned about those saying for themselves to be Judeans, and they are not, but are a congregation of the adversary, an assembly of Satan, if you will. The enemies of God in Judea are not the only enemies of God. For Yahweh said that he would have war with Amalek from generation to generation, Exodus chapter 17. And Amalek, being only a portion of the descendants of all of those accursed Canaanites, Kenites, the Rephaim, and others of his enemies mentioned in Genesis, had spread far and wide by the time of Christ. They weren't all considered to be Judeans. Only a small portion of them were in Judea, practicing Judaism. Yet we shall see in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, that the enemies of Christ in Jerusalem, as it was foretold, would fall by the edge of the sword, and they shall be taken away captive into all nations. They are among us today. And while over the centuries they have not all retained the same identity, for the most part, today they are known as Jews. Those who refused, who have always refused the sovereignty of Yahweh and of his Christ. Psalm 139 from verse 19. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. There's no such thing as a converted Jew. Thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do I not hate them? O Yahweh, that hate me. Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Here we see that not anyone can simply believe and somehow be saved. If that were so, how could Yahweh's enemies take his name in vain? James 2.19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the devils believe it, and they shudder. There is no salvation for devils or demons. Neither is there salvation for anyone but Israel to whom salvation was promised. Therefore, the Christians, the Christians should count all others as his enemies. Thine enemies take thy name in vain. The evidence of that is throughout Scripture. 
Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 10 and 11. And this is also repeated later on in the book of Jeremiah. And this idea is also expressed in Obadiah and in Isaiah and in Micah. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 10 and 11. Therefore fear not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed. This is addressed to the lost sheep. The Israelites were already deported, for the most part, by the Assyrians. They were already spread abroad for well over a hundred years by the time Jeremiah wrote this. Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet. And none shall make him afraid, because all the goats will be in the lake of fire when this happens. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Now where is Israel not scattered? Those of us who know who the children of Israel are, where are they not scattered? As the scripture says, all Israel shall be saved. And it is also evident that only Israel shall be saved. Wherever Israel has been scattered, all of those nations, all of those ethnicities, Yahweh has promised he shall make a full end of. I wouldn't want to be caught in bed with one of them. Luke 19.29 And it came to pass You're either a sheep or you're a goat, right? And it came to pass as he had come near to Bethsaida and Bethania near the mountain called of Olives. My translation is quite literal. He sent two of the students saying, Go into the opposite village upon which entering you shall find the least you shall find a leashed colt on which not one man has ever sat, and releasing it, bring it. And if anyone should ask you, Why do you release it? You speak thusly, because the prince has need of it. Then departing, those who were sent found just as he said to them. And upon their releasing it, its masters said to them, Why do you release the colt? Then they said, because the prince has need of it. The prescience of God, which was in Christ, is written into the Gospels quite prosaically, as if the apostles had taken it for granted. Prosaically, quite matter-of-factly. Yet here we see the prescience of Christ, which only God himself can have which only God can impart. 
as Yahweh pronounced in Isaiah chapter 41, this is the challenge to all false gods. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are gods. Only the word of Yahweh our God does that. Verse 35. And they brought it to Yahshua, and casting their garments upon the colt, they mounted Yahshua. And upon his going, they were spreading their garments in the road. Then upon his approaching, already near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of students rejoicing began to praise Yahweh with a great voice concerning all of the feats which they had seen, saying, Blessed is he coming, the King, in the name of Yahweh. Peace in heaven and honor in the heights. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So we see the perfect fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 in Christ's glorious entrance into Jerusalem a week before the crucifixion. Psalm 118, verses 24 and 26. This is the day which Yahweh has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Yahweh, O Yahweh, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he that comes in the name of Yahweh. We have blessed you out of the house of Yahweh. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to him, Teacher, admonish your students. And replying, he said, I say to you, if they should stay silent, the stones shall cry out. By no means would the testimony be prevented. The idea of rocks crying out in testimony may have been something of an adage among the Greeks. Yet, while I'm certain to have seen as much in the classics several times, I only have one citation to present now. It's in Euripides, the tragic poet. In Hippolytus, where he puts these words into the mouth of the hero Theseus, and I quote lines 976 to 980 of Euripides, according to the Loeb Classical Library, translated by David Kovacs. For if I am to be bested by you when you have done this to me, Isthmian Sinus shall no longer attest that I killed him, but say it was an idle boast. And the Scaronian rocks near the sea shall deny that I am a scourge to evildoers. The idea of rocks crying out, right? In, in early literature. 6th century B.C. I'm sorry, 5th century B.C. Verse 41. 
And as he approached, seeing the city, he wept for it, saying that if you had known in this day, even you, the things for peace, but now what is hidden from your eyes, because the days come upon you and your enemies, your enemies, not his enemies, the enemies of Jerusalem, not the enemies of God, shall cast a palisade around you, and they shall encompass you and enclose you from every side. And they shall level you to the ground and your children with you. Your children. The children in Jerusalem. The children of the city. Not the children of God, necessarily. And they shall not leave in you a stone upon a stone, because you have not discerned the time of your visitation. From Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27... Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. When I presented my commentary on the Gospel of Mark here last year, I put a lengthy chronology a lengthy and well-attested to historically and to scripture chronology of this prophecy. I won't repeat it. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood. The people of the prince, the people of Messiah, the prince, the Romans. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he, meaning Messiah, the prince, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease when he was sacrificed. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, meaning the city, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate, the people in Jerusalem. Daniel foretells the city being destroyed. Christ is only reinforcing Daniel's prophecy and explaining exactly how it would happen. From Romans chapter 16, verse 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That's the King James Version. Paul is telling the Romans in his salutation that Satan, the adversary, is going to be bruised under their feet shortly. That describes the destruction of Jerusalem as we see prophesied here by Christ and in Daniel. Paul is telling us that the Jews in Jerusalem are Satan. The word is simply a Hebrew word for adversary. The Jews are Satan. You want to see a Satan? Go to New York. There's plenty of them there. 
Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans about 15 years after Paul wrote that, or perhaps as little as 12 since the dating of Paul's composition of the epistle to the Romans is unclear. Paul understood both the prophecy of Daniel and the words of Christ here, that the people of Jerusalem who rejected Christ would be punished for that very reason. They proved that they are his enemies. They proved that they are Satan. In Luke chapter 21, Christ repeats at length his prophecies concerning the impending destruction of Jerusalem and punishment of his enemies. And we will discuss that at length here in a few weeks. Verse 45. And entering into the temple, he began to cast out the dealers, saying to them, It is written that my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Isaiah chapter 56, 7 refers to the house of Yahweh as a house of prayer. At Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, Yahweh states this, Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith Yahweh. In the context of Jeremiah 7, the spoiling of the temple in this manner was the direct result of the sin of the children of Israel. The presence of the bankers, the selling of doves, ostensibly for sacrifice, also shows that the religion of the Judeans had become a business. I would call it proto-Catholicism, right? Much like the business religions of today. No doubt the doves cost two or three times in the temple what they did in the common markets of the surrounding towns. And no doubt the money changers also exacted a much higher fee for their services simply because they were in a temple. This event here is also recorded in Matthew chapter 21 and in Mark chapter 11. There's another event not found in these three Gospels, but which is recorded in John chapter 2. And I will read it from John 2.12. After this, he went down into Capernaum, and his mother and brethren and his students, and they abode there for not many days. And it was near the Passover of the Judeans, and Yahshua went up to Jerusalem, and he found seated in the temple those selling cattle and sheep and doves and the bankers. And having made a whip of ropes, he cast them all out of the temple and the sheep and the cattle. And he spilled out the coins of the bankers and overturned the tables. And to those selling doves, he said, Take these things from here. Do not make the house. of my father, a house of merchandise. His students remembered that it is written, the zeal for your house consumes me. This event recorded in John must be a distinct event. Since John's gospel is actually quite chronological, in its construction, 
where John is seen to recount the feasts and the Passovers as they pass. And he does that throughout his gospel. While the event in John is similar, it is also different. And the circumstances which surround it are far different. Therefore, Yahshua must have done this very thing on two occasions. He threw the money changers from the temple on two occasions. Once recorded in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry. And the second time recorded here in Luke chapter 19. And also in Matthew 21 and in Mark 11 at the end of his ministry. Perhaps we today should be so fortunate because we've already thrown the money changers out of the temple once with Andrew Jackson. I can't wait to see the second time. Verse 47. Then he was teaching each day in the temple and the high priest and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. Yet they could not find that which they should do. For all of the people were devoted to hearing him. Judea, in the time of Christ, was much, was much like America is today. Wherever the devils infiltrate, they work in collusion to take over the government and all of the high positions and offices of the land. That's exactly what they've done here. If Christians would only believe their Bibles, that we should have nothing to do with any of the enemies of Christ our God. We would not get ourselves into the predicaments which lead to the very mess which all of our white nations are in today. There's a lot of good people in the Midwestern United States that vote for Jews every election. Send Russ Feingold to the Senate. Incredible or a wellstone. There are many people in our white nations who are true and who love our God. However, just like ancient Judea, the nations themselves are being run by the Antichrists for their own ends. And there is no political solution. None whatsoever. To John, verse 9, each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not God. He abiding in the teaching, he also has the Father and the Son. If one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into the house and do not speak to welcome him. For he speaking to welcome him takes a share in his evil works. All of those so-called Judeo-Christian preachers have taken a share in the evil works of the enemies of Christ simply because they have embraced the Jews. A Judeo-Christian is no better than a Judas Christian. However, we see in the psalm that God's enemies take his name in vain. There's no such thing as a good Jew or a converted one. Not until they get to the lake of fire. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night, and I believe I am going to begin presenting 
my treatise against the Paul Bashers. Tomorrow, I start confronting the Paul Bashers in podcasts. It's going to be a long one. I'm not sure I'm going to do it all at once. It's going to be an ongoing project. And I'm willing to add new material and take on new challenges as it commences. And perhaps even to take some callers if I get legitimate authors from any of the Paul bashers because I will prove them all to be fools without boasting. The scripture does it for them. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I'll be here next Friday. Luke chapter 20. Good night.